You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Thanks for leading us in that, uh, Merrily. That was beautiful and uh, beautiful choice of songs and uh, quite relevant for what we're looking at today. Today we uh, return to our exposition of the book of beginnings, Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And we'll pick up the story in chapter 3, although primarily I'm focused on chapter 3, but we'll actually pick it up late in chapter 2. So if you want to open your Bibles in preparation to Genesis 2, Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Because among other things, it helps us to understand why the world has gone so crazy lately. It's not that the world hasn't been crazy before, but things seem to have spiralled almost out of control in recent years. And it helps us to understand why there's so much vitriol being spewed at other people throughout our society today. Sadly, Christians have often shown themselves to be no less ready to attack their own than people of the world are ready to, to attack each other. And it's often over trivial things. Genesis 3 explains to us how we're in that state now. The book of Genesis, and especially chapter 3, is foundational for so much of the rest of the Bible. Now, uh, because it's such an important one, we'll probably be spending a few weeks in this chapter, and there's a lot of things I want to say, and uh, a lot of things I want to be able to show you that, uh, the, that uh, come out more clearly in the rest of the Bible, but are laid foundationally in the book of Genesis. But we'll have to leave that to next week hopefully it should be obvious to anyone that we're not evolving to a morally better plane every year the chasm between the haves and the haves have nots seems to expand and it's always to the detriment of the have nots who are frequently exploited to line the pockets of the haves every year we invent new and more ingenious ways to destroy each other if you were talking in evolutionary terms Mankind is devolving, not evolving. It seems to be built into us, and we seem to be powerless to resist it to any great degree. Genesis 3 tells us why. Shows us why you don't need to teach a baby in nappies to be defiant. They learn the behaviour all by themselves, and often to the surprise and the dismay of the adoring parents. Maybe if we could all just learn to love each other. And to get along, maybe if our political system wasn't corrupt and failing us, then society would improve to the point where we'd have a perfect utopia and we could all realise our full potential. But there's a problem with that thought. It's been tried before and it didn't work. Man has already been tested in the most favourable, most perfect conditions imaginable and he failed. With no history of sin or failure behind him, and with no examples of sin or evil to influence him, he was found wanting. As we'll read, there are an infinite number of liberties for the first humans, Adam, Adam and Eve, to enjoy and to exercise. There was only one restriction, and they failed at that one restriction. Then what chance do we have at this end of a multitude of generations of failure, of greed, of evil, of corruption, of exploitation, of selfishness. Their trouble and our trouble is not external, 
but it's internal. What they needed then and what we need now is not another opportunity, not an improved society, but a new birth. We all need to start again, to start completely afresh. But that's beyond our abilities. So let's read our text beginning in chapter 2. It's quite a long one. And as I said, we won't be able to talk about all of chapter 3 today, but we'll read all of it for the context. So we'll pick it up back in verse 15 of chapter 2, for that's particularly relevant to set the scene for chapter 3. Genesis 2.15 tells us, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. After telling Adam that, God puts Adam to sleep and takes a rib out of him to create Eve. Then we'll jump down to the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent, chapter 3, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and a man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The man and his wife were both naked. When we were here last in Genesis, I think it was uh, four weeks ago, I commented that this verse is speaking of more than just being unclothed. The bigger meaning is that there was an innocence about Adam and Eve. They knew nothing of sin because there was no sin. Therefore, they had nothing to be ashamed of. But how quickly that's about to change. Everything is good, very good at this point. In fact, everything is perfect. But just like in the Hollywood movies, this verse is setting the scene for a coming disaster. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, The serpent said to the woman, Whoever heard of such a thing, snakes don't talk. They don't have vocal cords. For some people, of course, this is just more proof that the Bible's full of myths and fairy tales. Plenty of scholars have tried to explain how a snake could talk. Some theorise that animals were able to communicate with humans at this point of history. I'm not convinced by that. Some think the author is using poetic licence, comparing God's first enemy with a stealthy and deadly creature like a snake. That's possible, although it doesn't make sense of some of the later verses. Others suggest that Satan entered into a real snake and spoke through it. Now, there's no mention of Satan, the devil, here in the text. We have to get that information much later on in the Bible. But it does become clear later on. The Apostle Paul writes that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. And Revelation 12.9 speaks of that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we're on pretty solid ground to conclude that the serpent was, in some unexplained way, Satan. And incidentally, the words devil and Satan mean slanderer and adversary, respectively. Fitting names for the devil when you know his history. Now just how the devil came to speak through a serpent is never told to us. But it's not beyond the bounds of reason when we're talking about the spiritual and the supernatural realm. After all, a donkey spoke to Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. And in 1 Kings 22, a spirit, presumably an evil spirit, volunteered to go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all King Ahab's prophets. And of course, then there's the legion of demons who spoke through the mouth of that poor, possessed Gadarene man before Jesus kicked them out and cast them into a herd of pigs. So it's not especially strange that the devil could somehow speak through a snake. But it is still a strange scene to our ears, and it's never explained to us. But regardless of how it works, the serpent was more crafty, more cunning than any other creature. In contrast, the innocence and the lack of deceptiveness of Adam and Eve, that's only one verse earlier, remember, we encounter another creature 
with a hidden agenda this time. If you're like me, you have to wonder where this creature came from in the first place. What inspired this malevolence on his part? On the natural reading of Genesis 1 and 2, there's a distinct absence of evil in this creation. It was very good, according to the words of none other than God himself. So how did this serpent, this devil, become so crafty, so slippery? What happened to him to make him an enemy of God and the arch-deceiver? We can't be entirely sure, but there are a few hints in other parts of the Bible. And both Isaiah and Ezekiel, I've mentioned previously, write of earthly kings in terms that seem to go far beyond that earthly king. Isaiah records God's words in chapter 14. How you were fallen from, from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will sit on my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Ezekiel, in similar fashion, writes in chapter 28, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the signet of perfection. Full of, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. You are an anointed guardian cherub. You are blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And many scholars believe that this is referring not just to the particular earthly kings that it was addressed to originally, but also to the creation and the downfall of Satan. And I'm inclined to agree with them. That begs the question, of course, of when and why Satan fell from his exalted position. I'm tempted to think it was immediately after the creation of Adam and Eve. Now we know from the Gospels that Satan tried to get Jesus to worship him. That's the pattern we see there in Isaiah's words. You said in your heart, I will send to heaven, I will set my throne on high, I will make myself like the Most High. And remember, we've just read the serpent enticing Eve with the words, when you eat of the fruit of this forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. All sin, ultimately, is about the desire to be gods ourselves and to be in charge of our own lives. In fact, Paul wrote about the coming man of lawlessness, that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes the, his, his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Though I think, without wanting to be dogmatic about it, that Satan saw an opportunity to be like God and receive worship from these first two human beings created in the image of God. And so, knowing full well that only God himself, their creator, deserved their worship, this serpent, the devil, tried, sought to subvert that worship and fracture that relationship and get the worship for himself. So what does his strategy entail? It's a three-pronged strategy that's important for us to understand, for it hasn't changed in all the millennia since, and he still uses it on a daily basis. Genesis 3.1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now there's a couple of important things to note about this. 
Firstly, the devil addresses the woman, not the man. Now that's not a reflection on the relative mental awareness or intelligence of women compared to men. Rather, I believe the serpent addressed her because God gave the command to Adam and she only heard it second hand. She didn't have the direct personal command of God like Adam did. So in this sense, she was the weak link. The devil likes to attack the weakest first. Like a wolf pack will separate out the weak and the stragglers at the back of a herd of bison, so he first targets those he thinks will be most susceptible to his wiles. This, friends, is why it's important that we know the word of God for ourselves. For if we don't know it, we leave ourselves open to the devil's attacks and we can't see through his lies. And notice another thing about this first prong of his attack. He both misquotes God and he presents it as a seed of doubt. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, as a matter of fact, God did not actually say that. That makes God sound miserly, like he's stingy, like God has all this good stuff that he doesn't want to share with anyone. Rather, God's command to Adam was one of generosity. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden except one. How many trees were in that garden? We never find out. Were there hundreds? Were there thousands? Were there hundreds of thousands of trees in that garden? And only one forbidden to Adam. That would hardly seem to be stingy. And yet that's precisely what the serpent implies with his question to Eve. If God weren't so stingy, he would let you eat anything you like. We have the same complaints today, though, don't we? If God weren't such a spoil sport, he would let me do anything I want, wouldn't he? And so we cast doubt on God's goodness and his generosity and use that to justify our own behaviour, no matter how sinful that behaviour might be. God is still generous today. We're permitted to do anything we like, anything we want, within the bounds of his commands. And let's face it, there's not that many commands. There's only ten of them, really. And they all boil down into only two. Jesus puts it like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's it. That covers everything. As long as you're doing these two, you can do anything you like. Of course, that's a bit simplistic. But the point is, God is anything but stingy, in spite of the serpent's suggestion. Eve, because she only has, the, has God's word secondhand, misquotes God in her response to the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, that much is true. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. When we don't know God's word for ourselves, we too are prone to the same mistake. We subtract from it and or we add to it. And both of us leave us exposed to harm. In this case, Eve added to the command, neither shall you touch it. That's the essence of legalism. 
which the Bible condemns in the strongest terms. Legalism is requiring anything of someone that God doesn't require. Legalism manifests itself in all areas of our lives, but Christians are particularly susceptible to it and clearly warned about it. We want to obey God, and so we often place additional boundaries where God hasn't placed them just to be safe. Don't drink. Don't watch certain movies. Don't smoke. It used to be much more pronounced in Christian circles than, than it is today. Don't dance. Don't do lots of things because they are sinful. But that attitude is still around. The, Christian, the Pharisees did it in the Gospels and we do it today. We add to God's word to try and make sure we're safe. It's legalism. But the serpent said to the woman in verse 4, You will not surely die. I'm not sure how the serpent knew this to be a fact. No one and nothing had died up to this point. No one had disobeyed God to find out. So where did the serpent get his confidence that they were safe? It's a blatant lie, of course, based on nothing, really. The serpent's first question to Eve was, a lie phrased as a question, and this one is a lie presented as a dogmatic statement. Now we know, having read the story, that there was a certain amount of truth in it though. Adam and Eve didn't die immediately after eating the forbidden fruit. So that's another feature of the devil's tactics. He blends just enough truth in to make it believable, but ultimately it is still a lie. And you know, he's not the only one that does that. We do it too. We only tell enough of the story to make sure people believe us, but not enough that they see through our story and see our faults. We're really no different to the devil when we do that. And the serpent goes on, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There it is. You will be like God. Every one of us wants to think that we are God of our own lives. We want to do what we want to do. We want to make up our own rules. And we resent the slightest infringement on our freedoms or the slightest suggestion that we are not as good as we think we are. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I think some Bible scholars have called this the anatomy of sin. It's helpful for us to understand this process, for the principles here still apply. The devil hasn't changed his strategy in all the generations since the Garden of Eden because he hasn't needed to. They are still just as effective today as they were in that garden. So how does he entice us to disobey God? It begins with planting seeds of doubt and it's watered by lies disguised as truth. Surely God wouldn't say that. Surely God wants you to be happy. Why would he tell you not to do something that you don't want to do, something that will make you happy? That's the first, and it's a subtle attack. 
Once we show interest in the bait that's dangled before us, the devil becomes emboldened. He becomes more blatant in his lies. Don't worry, it won't hurt you. You won't die. There won't be any consequences, at least nothing you can't handle. Accept that as truth, and you're hooked. As soon as you believe the devil's lies, you begin to rationalise your disobedience, your sin. Eve did it. She looked at the tree and the forbidden fruit, and she saw that the tree was good for food. This will satisfy the hunger I have. If I just eat this, read this, watch this, do this, I'll feel better. I won't feel empty anymore. Besides, not only will it satisfy my cravings, it also looks pretty nice. It's a delight to the eyes. How can anyone imagine that something so appealing could bring me harm? That's absurd. But more than that, it will help me grow as a person. I'll be more experienced. I'll be more knowledgeable. Heck, I might be able to even help other people if I try this. It's to be desired to make one wise. The Apostle John describes the process like this in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. One translation puts that verse, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh that is, the craving for sensual gratification, and the lust of the eyes, the, great, the greedy longings of the mind, and the pride of life, that is, the assurance of one's own resources, these do not come from the Father, but are from the world itself. So Eve saw that the tree was good for food. It appealed to the desires of the flesh, the craving for sensual gratification. It was a delight to the eyes. It appealed to the desires of the eyes, the greedy longings of the mind. And it was to be desired to make one wise. It appealed to the pride of life, the assurance in one's own resources. And John's pretty clear in his letter. None of this is from God. Therefore, all of it is harmful. In fact, no matter how attractive something is, or how much you think it will help you or solve your problems, if it goes against God's commands, it will kill you. Maybe not physically, maybe not immediately. Adam and Eve didn't drop dead on the spot, but they died spiritually immediately. Their life-giving relationship with God was ripped apart, which is why their first reaction was to hide in shame and cover their nakedness, anticipating God's rejection. We do the same today, don't we? We don't want anyone to see our sin, to see our failure, to see the blackness of our hearts. So we put on a front. We pretend to be innocent. We act like everything is fine. We don't let anyone close enough to see what we're really like. For if they did, they too would probably reject us. Better to keep it all hidden inside. Now we need to know and to understand God's word for ourselves if we're to have any hope of avoiding sin. Eve didn't know it for herself, having only heard Adam's retelling of it, and her mistake set in motion a chain of events that has contaminated the whole world since. But interestingly, 
the Bible doesn't blame Eve. It blames Adam, who was there with her at the time, and who did nothing to stop it. He could have stepped in right there, but he didn't. One of the saddest lines in the Bible must be, Eve gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam was without excuse. Adam knew God's command. He had it first hand. Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if Adam had stepped in and said, No way, Jose, this is not happening on my watch. Things would have been very different. The serpent would have been stopped in his tracks, defeated from the very beginning. But Adam went along with it, knowingly disobeying God, knowingly disobeying his creator. And he doomed every one of his descendants to live in a state of unrelenting brokenness, broken relationships with each other, broken relationship with the environment, broken health and broken relationship with God. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Friends, that's why the world is in such a mess today. That's why we can't seem to get along even with Christian brothers and sisters who differ with us about something like COVID. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's why you don't need to teach a baby to be disobedient. That's why the whole world is addicted to something. Drugs, alcohol, sport, porn, work, money, fame, doesn't matter what it is. That's why we can't shake off our addictions. Why we can't clean up society. Why we can't stop wars. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. That's why we get sick and die. But there's good news. There is a solution. There is a new start, a new birth. And it's available in Jesus Christ, to all who would put their trust in him. The first Adam, the one who disobeyed God, is the representative of all humanity. It's what theologians call federal headship. So the guilt of Adam and the sinful nature that makes us all chafe against restrictions is inherited by all of us from Adam. 
Think of it as a spiritual DNA, if you like. We all have this DNA, and it can be traced back to the first man, Adam. That means we are born into this world with a natural disposition against God. Every person has it. Our only hope of overcoming this is not in our own strength. It's not in our own abilities. It's not in our own goodness. For none of us can be good enough to undo the damage that's been done. Now we need another representative. We need a man who is able to obey perfectly all that God requires of us. We need someone to represent us in the courts of heaven. And that man is Jesus Christ, also known as the last Adam. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, Thus it is written, The first man Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Friends, Adam is our representative from the day we are born. But when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he becomes your representative instead. And so his perfect obedience is credited to your account as if you were the one who obeyed perfectly yourself. And he can do that because not only is he a perfect man, the only perfect man who has ever lived since that fateful day in Eden, but he is also God. All the things we wish we could do better, all the things we wish we could be better, he is able to do and he is able to grant us by his divine power. You won't find a better offer than that anywhere in the universe. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, why don't you do that today? It's as simple as admitting that you're a failure at obeying those two simple commands to love him above everything and to love your neighbour as yourself. And then ask him to wash away that sin and that failure and to give you a new heart, a new spirit, a new beginning. And he will be faithful to do so. For those who have already done that, as tough as this life can be, as often as we fail and sin, he has already washed your sin away on that cross 2,000 years ago, before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes. And he continues to plead your case in the courts of heaven, based on the blood he shed to purchase you. No serpent, no devil, has an argument that can overcome this heavenly lawyer. So you are secure with Jesus Christ as your representative, your federal head. His intercession on your behalf will never fail. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we're here in Genesis chapter 3 being confronted with the reasons why not just that the world is a mess, but why we're a mess, Lord. Why we struggle to get on with each other, why we have 
selfish tendencies, why we have addictions that we can't break. Lord, we thank you that your word and Genesis 3 in particular reveal to us how that has happened, how there's, uh, how the, these things have come to be in the world ever since. But Lord, we also thank you that you have provided a way to overcome the devil, that you, Lord Jesus, that you have defeated the devil on that cross and you have defeated death by your resurrection. And Lord, that for those of us who have put your trust and for all who will put their trust in you in the future, Lord, you have overcome on our behalf as well. And as one of John's letters says, we have an intercessor in heaven pleading our case before the Father. Jesus, we know your intercession can never fail. And so, Lord, we rejoice that we are secure in the righteousness that you have credited to our account. Just as if I'd never sinned, Lord, even though I have. You have taken that sin on your shoulders, Jesus. Paid the price and defeated it so that you could grant us eternal life and one day perfect purity and holiness in your presence. Lord, we long for that day. We pray, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Bring these things about quickly, Lord, we pray. For we long to be with you in that new heavens, the new earth that you'll be recreating. We long to be in that place where there'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more curse, no more sin. But until that day comes, Lord, we pray that you'll keep all of us strong in you, strong in our faith, strong in your word, Lord, so that we can see through the wiles of the devil, see through his lies, we can see through the enticements of the world. And Lord, we pray for friends, neighbours, family, workmates, strangers. Lord, that you will bring new birth, new hearts to them as well, Lord so that they can rejoice also in your presence, in your great gift, as we sang this morning, your great gift that's granted to us through your amazing grace. Jesus, you truly are worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. And Lord, we stand today and say, we will live for you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, will you... Help us to do that, to live for our King, our Master, our Lord, and bring him honour and glory in his name, in your name, Jesus, Mighty One, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.